two weeks ago uh, in an interview with a Mexican news outlet, Pope Francis discussed plans uh, for his own funeral. Not many of us do that, but he plans to break with more recent tradition, the tradition of being buried in St. Peter's Basilica, instead choosing to be buried at the Basilica of St. Mary Major. He's already had a burial vault uh, prepared there uh, near the Basilica's famous icon of the Virgin. Even before he became Pope, uh, Francis would visit the Basilica to pray there before the icon Salus Populi Romani, protectress of the health and salvation of the Roman people. And he continues to visit it, to visit before it uh, after each and before acts before and after each of his international trips. It's a two meter by one meter painting, which may date back to the sixth century. So it's, it's got a bit of age to it, but it's been much overpainted uh, over the years. And that, this, this is, I guess it's going to stay there. <laughs> it was uh, cleaned and restored just a few years ago. The regal lady is dressed just as someone we saw here earlier was dressed in the familiar dark blue mantle over her purple or red tunic. Now throughout history, uh, pardon me. Uh, throughout history, blue has been considered a, a sacred and valuable hue. It doesn't occur naturally, and it's therefore considered rather mystical and, and rare. And one of the earliest true blue pigments was ultramarine, uh, a color that's made from lapis lazuli a costly stone that was once more precious uh, than gold. So in art, it was reserved only for the most elevated subjects. You had to be really important to be dressed in blue. And it was not until the fifth century that blue became associated with the Virgin Mary. Renaissance painters, for example, would choose red for Mary's tunic. That was the color that influential Jewish women of their day would wear. But then they and later painters would cover that with a blue mantle, especially after some theological scholars would object that red shouldn't be used because it signified a looser, unchaste, scarlet woman. Well, I invite you to check your religious Christmas cards to see what the Holy Family looks like. And I would guess that all of the Virgin Marys would be dressed properly in blue. Blue is the color of the wealthy, the nobility, those who are far above us, less deserving plebs. 
But I think Mary is dressed more appropriately in anything but blue, perhaps in brown. If you Google the Annunciation, the name for this announcement, and click images, you'll see lots of Marys dressed in blue. But you will also find this 1898 painting by the Afro-American artist, Henry Osawa Painter, Tanner, pardon me. In his portrayal, Mary is a young, small, insignificant person who is clad in perhaps a dirty brown dress, sitting on a simple bed in a cave-like room with dirt-like walls. And before her is this pillar of brilliant light, so vibrant that it seems to shimmer and move, though it doesn't have any visible shape. That's the angel. And young Mary gazes at this angel with fascination and wonder. And as the Episcopalian preacher Kate Moorhead puts it, Mary looks upon the angel with all humility, as if she is saying, how can I step aside for you? It's not a p position of weakness. It's a position of strength. Mary is choosing to bow before the glory of God. Now, blue-clad Mary has been exalted to a status approaching that of deity. But Luke starts in a very different place. You might think of the other writings, Gospel of Mark. His memorable mention of Mary is of Mary and her other sons coming to take the boy home because he's obviously gone off his rocker. Or Matthew's Mary, well, he at least shows up, or she at least shows up at the tomb. And then neither John nor Paul bother to mention Mary at all. But in Luke 1, Mary is the most Christ-like human in the entire story. As the Lutheran professor Mark Powell reminds us, the evangelist Luke does not exalt Mary as a goddess or as a mother or even as a woman. He thinks she has a more important role yet as the ideal Christian. In the third gospel, Mary becomes the model for Christian discipleship, the person who all people, men and women alike, should emulate, especially if they wish to follow her son. But even though our medieval faith forebears did dress Mary in blue, they exalted her, they got one major feature of Mary totally right. They had developed a strange notion of Jesus as an incredibly stern judge, ready, almost eager to send people to hell. But they remembered that Mary, the one favored by God, was highly favored or graced, that she was full of grace. 
And so a notion going the rounds then and now is reflected in the suggestion that one day in, in heaven, Jesus approached Peter. Peter, of course, was acting in his role as the admissions officer there at the pearly gates. And Jesus was complaining about the quality of people that, that Peter was letting in. So many of them are of questionable reputation. Peter responded, I know, Lord, but what am I to do? They come to me here and I turn them away. And so they go around to the back door and talk to your mother and she lets them in. <laughs> Mary, full of grace. Her words in response to the angel, let it be with me according to your word. That's seen in Luke as the ideal response to God's call. It's a combination of humble trust and obedient service. But there are lots of reasons, lots of reasons why it could not be me that God is calling. First of all, I'm not Mary dressed in regal blue. I'm not all that important. I have no astounding resume, no long list of gifts, accomplishments, and commendations to my name. I am just. And then Luke smashes all of that excuse, that all of that excuse with a Mary that is more likely dressed in brown, a simple peasant teenager. She's no Abigail. She's no Rachel or Esther. She's not even a Moses sister, Miriam. Luke's Mary is no blue-clad queen of heaven. She's simply a young teenage girl betrothed to a presumably much older Joseph. And according to ancient customs of that day, her father, at some point as early as her 12th birthday, would have arranged her betrothal. And then she would live for a year at home before the groom would come to take her to his home and the week-long wedding celebration. Legally, the marriage would be sealed at that point, and uh, that could only end in the wedding, the death of her husband, or divorce. She's a simple peasant girl, already promised to Joseph and still living at home. There's absolutely no royal blue seal on her resume. Furthermore, the task that God is calling Mary to do is both risky and impossible. Pregnancy for such a young woman was in itself a bit of a risk. But unwed pregnancy in that small Galilean town whose holy book prescribed stoning as the proper response for out-of-marriage pregnancy, Roman rule might have lessened the likelihood of that, but wagging tongues could break more than bones. But the objection that Mary raises also is the biological one. 
She knew more about the birds and bees than would be legally acceptable in certain contemporary educational settings. How can this be since I'm a virgin? So Mary's got good reason for refusing this call. I'm unqualified because I'm just. I'm only ordinary. The task for which you are calling me, that's risky and impossible. And then there may even be a further reason for Mary to resist this call from the get-go. This Mary, who in just a few moments is going to quote and echo great passages of scripture, presumably knows enough scripture to, to recognize that the way that she's been addressed is a little sketchy. The angel's first words to her are, greetings, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. And there are only two Hebrew characters who are told by hem heavenly emissaries that they would be called favored, blessed among women. And those two women are Jael, who kills Sisera in Judges 5, and Judith, who in the Apocrypha kills Holofernes. So, hi, killer. So any reasonable, mild-mannered, Bible-believing virgin is going to have mighty good reason to worry about the assignment she's about to get. So sometimes those calls come in ways that do more to terrify than to entice. Now I know that I, and maybe some of you, do quite well at crafting arguments that excuse me from whatever new challenge that is put before me. I've got all those good reasons why I don't really need to act in love toward that annoying neighbor or family member. I can explain in detail why my letter to that politician won't really make a difference in the grand scheme of things. And I can argue that my piddly contribution to creation care uh, hardly seems worth the inconvenience. My monetary gift won't make that much of a difference for that refugee in Gaza or Sudan. And I know for a fact that I'm really not qualified to, to do that thing that people seem to think I can do. And the way that I was asked, well, that was almost as bad as what that angel was doing with Mary, calling her or implying that she might be a, a man-killer. But Luke praises Mary, and praises Mary not for her resistance to the divine call, but for her attitudes and actions in response to this strange visitation and invitation. First of all, like some of us when offered a challenging opportunity, Mary is perplexed. So far, the only thing the angel has said is, greetings, highly favored one, the Lord's with you. But nothing about pregnancy, nothing about virgin birth. The shock comes from the fact that she's been noticed by the divine, singled out by that angelic presence. 
I like how the Lutheran professor Caroline Lewis puts it. Let's be honest. Perplexity is exactly our response when the Lord shows up. To me, why me? And why now? I think we underestimate the impact of what it means to know that God is actually around, is here with us. Doesn't God have better things to do? Bigger things to take care of? More major issues to maintain than me? Perhaps some more perplexity would do us well. And then Luke tells us that she pondered what sort of greeting this might be. And addressing her, her understandable fear, Luke then, or Gabriel then doubles down on the favored one comment. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. So God's callings come to Mary and to us, not from some focus on what a wretch and worm am I, but rather from a sense of our being favored, being beloved of God. And Gabriel underscores that with his greeting and his repeating that greeting's core truth. And then comes the whammy, the impossible. And now you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will name him Jesus. And Gabriel goes on to describe the special role of this child. But then Mary does what any, any of us would do given an impossible assignment. She offers objections. That's what we all do. Questions. Just the facts, sir. How can this be since I am a virgin? Literally, I do not know, have not had sexual relations with a man. I've never been with a man. And somehow it seems right that, that a Mary or any of us would raise those hard questions. The self-doubts, the real world questions. In Mary's case, those are grounded in scientific reality, her, her knowledge of the birds and bees. In our cases, those cold hard facts, supposedly, might actually reflect more our own self-doubts and pessimisms rather than concrete reality. But Mary's questions, they, they do parallel and may even seem to justify our own similar questioning. But for Mary, the questioning does not stop there. Gabriel gives some explanation of how this will happen, and he offers Mary a sign that will remind her of what God can do, the sign of the pregnancy of Elizabeth. And unlike many of us, Mary seems open to receiving new information. And soon she sets out to visit her older cousin Elizabeth. She opens herself to the proof that God was up to some new and marvelous things. And then comes ma the major point from this story, her response, I am the servant of God. Let it be done to me as you say. As Professor Powell puts it, in Luke, Mary is the most Christ-like human being in the entire story. Her words to the angel 
are a direct parallel to what Jesus later prays in the garden. Let it be with me according to your word. And later on, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. So why me? Why not me? It's much easier for us to view Mary as that blue-clad queen of heaven, someone who's a, a long, long way out of our class, someone that we can admire rather than emulate. But Mary, according to Luke, is much more likely clad in brown, common, ordinary, rough brown, uh, more like burlap than silk. Like or unlike us, she's got no sterling resume, no list of admirable accomplishments or skills, ordinary. But when called by God, she responds, I am the servant of God, let it be done to me as you say. May that be our response as well. Amen.